I'm Lentz Daniel, and this is the SRQ House Church Podcast. This teaching is part four in our Life Together series, where we explored what it means to be together, what it takes to be together, and the full life that it produces in Jesus. Here, God speaks to the mystery. Do y'all know about the mystery? Have you heard about it? Perfect. Let me tell you all about it. The mystery is designed to be the solution to many of the problems we experience today. This mystery has to do with you and me and many others globally, from people in the past to those in the present, though it actually stayed hidden from those in past generations, but was revealed in the Apostle Paul's present. It's a mystery how today a church planted in a mainly white, wealthy city hires a a black couple. Is that a mystery or is it crazy? Maybe I'm getting the two confused. Truly, The mystery is about how God is always up to something. Those with eyes to see and ears to hear will understand that this mystery is actually an open secret about Jesus. It's a mystery. How it started with deeply Jewish roots, Christianity is the most ethnically diverse religious movement in human history in terms of demographic diversity and numerical proportion. Every metric or measure you can find Christianity is diverse, and it's a mystery. On top of that, it's a mystery whether this happens through the organic outworking of the Spirit or an intentional practice motivated by the Spirit. Those outside of the Jesus community, the church, don't get it. The mystery was made known to Paul, and he made it his mission and ministry. This mystery has led to Paul penning about it in prison. And that is where we'll meet him. Meet me in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. My version says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember. That at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul tells the readers of this letter that this to remember This is the only imperative and command that Paul issues in the first three chapters in the letter to the Ephesians. He tells the Gentiles, remember when you guys were distant, without hope, where you lacked purpose, promise, and privilege, the encouragement is to keep their former lives in view. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but for all of us in this room or listening, our lives before Jesus weren't pretty. I was such a jerk before Jesus, so much so only one person wanted to sit down and share the scriptures with me so that I can learn more about Jesus. Months ago, all of the men in the church got together and shared stories about our former lives before Jesus. It was awkward and it was cringy, but that was who we were. Do you remember who you were? Paul is telling us to remember, but we like to forget. And our world tells us to do so. Keep the past in the past. Focus on the present and the future because that's what really matters. What Paul tells us here is what we need to hear. Because those who do not acknowledge the past are doomed to what? We're doomed to what? Repeat it. This is true about our personal history, our family history, and our national history as well. 
Also, this remedy to remember moves us to a grateful obedience to Jesus because we know how it's like to go our own way. The Gentiles in this passage are forced to remember their former lives because the Jewish Christians won't let them forget. Paul explains the situation between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember your former lives, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by into the body by human hands. Paul says to them, you who are born Gentiles are called uncircumcised by another group. To understand what Paul's getting at here, we have to realize the difference between being called a Gentile and being called uncircumcised. Gentile is actually a familiar Greek word to us here. Gentile is ethnoth in the Greek. It's where we get the English words ethnicity and ethnic, which translates as nations or people groups. So anytime you see Gentile in your Bibles, think the nations, meaning all the other nations and people groups where the different languages, cultures, heritage, skin colors, accents, aside from Israel or the Jewish people. The ethnos are the non-Jews. So everyone in this room that is not Jewish, we are ethnos, non-Jews, the nations. Relative to the Jews, the non-Jews were strangers and foreigners. But to call the nations uncircumcised Oh, that was going too far. Uncircumcised was a derogatory comment. At best, the Jews were name-calling and bad-mouthing them because they were different. At worst, they were passing judgment and shaming them for who they were. Now, let's be honest. We see or maybe have been a part of name-calling and bad-mouthing specific groups because of their different gender, skin color, politics, accents, so forth. We see this on our social networks where people hide behind screens and say the things they want to say privately. This type of behavior is in our history, and sadly, it's dehumanizing. In effort to love our neighbors and our enemies as the church, we need to be wary of name-calling and bad-mouthing specific people groups because they're different or because we don't understand them. Or we flat out disagree with them because it takes one baptism to make an enemy your brother or your sister. And I say all of this because I've been on both sides of the name calling and the bad mouthing. I've done it. And it never feels good after the fact. About four years ago, I was playing in a flag football tournament um, at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And I was talking so much trash to the opposing team. I was talking trash to their sidelines. But specifically, my heart and my, 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 my bad words were towards one specific person. And I didn't use any cuss words because I didn't need it. Because um, what I was saying was just as bad, right? And when the, the college ministry or the campus ministry came to see me play, they didn't even recognize me because I was so angry and mean-spirited. And so much hate was towards this one player. We eventually won the game. But the next Sunday, uh, a friend from church brings this guy to church, the guy that I spewed the, the most hate at. And uh, I felt so much shame seeing him because it finally hit me. The way I treated him was so out of pocket and the gospel couldn't reach him because of my actions. And I tried to connect with him and build a friendship from that time on and it just had no effect. This is the effects of our name calling and our bad mouthing, our jokes on the side. Paul doesn't stop here though. 
He seeks to address the hostility between these two groups, between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in verse 14. Paul says this in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with all of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who are far and preached peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul summarizes the whole gospel in a few words. Jesus is our peace. And that is good news, amen. But it comes with some bad news too. We only need peace when hostility is present. What started with Jewish Christians name-calling and pad-mouthing and even causing um, the Gentiles to feel shame, now they built a barrier, a dividing wall of hostility between them and the nations, keeping the nations out. Ironically, their source of hostility is rooted in God's plan for the nations. God formed his people, the Israelites, and called them to be holy and distinct from the nations so they can minister and serve the nations, to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light of the world. These Jews were, were supposed to separate themselves for the nations for the sake, from the nations for the sake of the nations. However, they chose their own Jewish identity over their purpose. They created hostility like that. They separated themselves for the sake of themselves and missed their mission. The differences that were supposed to offer the Jews and the nation's mutual blessing created beef, consistent conflict, which developed into a history of hostility. By choosing their Jewishness over everything else, they built walls and closed themselves off from everybody else. To be sure, this is not just a Jewish problem or Jewish thing. This is a human thing. We build walls too. We build walls between us and God. We build walls between us and ourselves. We build walls between us and others. My question is for you guys, where are you building walls? And a better and more pressing question is, who are you trying to keep out? Are you trying to keep out God because he's you're mad at him and you don't understand him? Are you trying to keep out a family member or a relative because of the pain and the hurt they've caused you? Maybe you're trying to keep yourself out. So you don't have to think about the sin and the secrets you're carrying. Here's the subtle truth. We build walls and hostility towards people who think differently, who experience the world differently than us. Those people tend to be people of different ages, genders, race, ethnicity, politics. I think it's easy to say, and you hear a sermon like this, to say you don't struggle with any of the isms, the ageism, sexism, racism, or any of the isms. Before you say you're good on this, ask yourself, what kind of people do you make fun of when no one's around? What are the things your parents taught you about politics, race, and gender? The isms are not an American problem. But it is a problem I believe the American church struggles to acknowledge. We feel more comfortable talking about lust and anger, insecurity and selfishness than this. Because unaddressed hostility will cost us. Tim Combis describes the hostility 
like this. Nation has turned against nation, ethnic group against other ethnic groups, seeking to exploit weaknesses and gain dominance. Ethnic, national, and racial divisions are deep and painful scars in God's world and are profound causes of grief to his heart. This is what hostility does to God because the the thing that hostility does is it breaks down, it fractures, it divides things that were meant to be whole. The Jewish Christians built up walls and broke down the family bonds that were created by the blood of Jesus. And Paul is so passionate about this problem of hostility because hostility turns into division. Division is the death of the church. We must understand that. Hostility develops into division and division is the death of the church. In the news, on social media, or in our politics, hostility seems to be an impossible problem to solve. The good news again is Jesus is our peace. And I don't want to sell Jesus short here because he kind of does it all. He is our peace. He comes down and does the hard work to make peace. Then he preaches peace to those far, wide, and near. Have we heard this message of peace before? Recently? Or is it just hostility? Maybe it's all a mystery to you. When Paul speaks of peace in this passage, this much is clear. The human heart cannot make or manifest peace on its own. With the hostility in our flesh and bones, we need something outside of ourselves, an outside source for peace. Keeping our former lives in view, we never really had access to true peace until we were in Christ. Now we have access to it because Jesus is is our peace and our peacemaker. But when Jesus makes peace, he isn't just trying to bridge the gap between two hostile groups and then they live happily ever like some Pixar or Disney movie. Rather, whether we're seeking peace in conflict resolution, repenting of sexism, ageism, or racism, being unified in our marriage or as a church, for Jesus to bring peace, he must tear down before he builds back up. He must, to make peace, he has to tear down before he builds back up. He makes peace in a destructive and constructive manner. Jesus moves violently. Look at how Paul describes the process of making peace and what Jesus does. He destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He abolishes the law and then he puts to death the hostility. The literal translation of that verse is having killed hostility in himself. The process of peace starts with Jesus bringing a sledgehammer to tear down the barriers and destroy the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus abolishes the law's power to divide, and then he kills hostility in himself, his body. He's looking to tear down anything that divides people. Seeking the peace of Jesus is going to be a painful process. Jesus comes with a sledgehammer and it may get harder before it gets better. This is where people are tempted to stop. We hope that Jesus would just come through the Holy Spirit and hand us peace like that. But generally, that's not how he works. He does the more rewarding thing to form us into people of peace like him, a non-reactive, non-anxious presence that brings peace everywhere he goes. My question is for you. What does Jesus have to tear down to get you there? 
And are you willing to let Jesus tear down the walls of hostility in your heart? Because after tearing down the walls, now Jesus can build up something beautiful in its place. When, when peace finishes its work, the two become one. In Genesis chapter 2, the two become one is how the author of the book describes building a family. Here, Paul uses the same idea that two different people groups are integrated into one. They become one whole unified family of God. This passage has been about unity. Paul has been preaching, protecting, and promoting unity. The church is built on the unity of two different families, the Jews and the nations. And that's the message that Paul would go to prison for. That's where he's writing from. And he tells us all about it in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, my version says this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery that was made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand the insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to people in other generations as it now has been revealed. Well, it's been, verse five says, actually, which was not made known to people in other generations as it was now made revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of the same body, and shares together of the same promise in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the time has finally come for the Gentiles or the nations to be heirs together with Israel. Not just heirs together, the nations are members together of the same body with Israel. And finally, the nations are shares together of the same promise of Jesus with Israel. Co-heirs, co-body members, co-shares of the promise. Without this, we would not be here. Why this is so powerful is that the mystery through the gospel has no extra or middle steps. What the Jews envisioned, which caused the hostility in the first place, is that the nations would first convert to Judaism and then to Christianity. If they converted to Judaism, then there's no hostility to separate them from the nations. Because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah and a Jewish Savior. And Paul could have said to the Gentiles, go ahead and do this. And kind of like Thanos, he's... It's converting to the Jewish religion. It's just a small price to pay for salvation. But Paul doesn't do that. He protects their diversity in the midst of conflict. He says to the nations, you don't have to be Jewish to become Christians. But he also says to the Jews, and we can't miss this part. He says to the Jews, you don't have to forget your Jewish roots when you become Christians. And he's saying to all of us that's listening to this, we don't have to leave our culture, our ethnicity, our race, our age, our gender, or our unique experiences of the world at home when you come to church. Lynn Kohick describes it this way. The mystery is that God's work in Christ, now revealed in the gospel message, promotes full and equal inclusion of the Gentiles or the nations into God's household. If chapter 2 is about Paul promoting and protecting and preaching unity, chapter 3 is about Paul protecting, promoting, 
and preaching diversity. What led Paul to prison was his driving passion that he believed Jesus was a Jewish Messiah and Savior, was a man that made a way for all people from all places in all time. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah for all nations. For Paul, the gospel was not good enough if it wasn't for everybody and if it didn't keep everyone's culture intact, at least sanctified culture. And Paul pushes this truth a bit forward in verse Nine, my version says, and we're jumping in right in the middle of a sentence. It says, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Right here. This is what God wanted to do. Once this mystery is made known, it's revealed, it displays the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold wisdom of God. And one Bible nerd point here, if I could spare y'all a moment. Manifold can be translated as multifaceted or multidiverse. It's a compound Greek word. And the Greek word is poipokilos. In the Greek version of our Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. Poipokilos is the word that describes Joseph's coat of many colors. Isn't that interesting? The coat of many colors that Joseph had towards the end of the book of Genesis is how Paul describes the church. A coat woven with different shapes, colors, and textures. Imagine a Kooji sweater. If you know, you know. God weaves the church with different shapes, textures, and colors and makes a unified whole more beautiful together than they are separate. God has made a new fabric out of our difference. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says it better than I could. At the very essence, the Bible is saying that what God is doing in in the story of humanity is unifying diverse nations into one new humanity. But now, but not in a way that erases or marginalizes anyone's cultural differences, but actually in a way honors and resurrects and glorifies what's unique and beautiful about every human culture. I believe this means that the manifold wisdom of God, the multidiverse wisdom of God, I, I use diverse because I think it's a great word. The multidiverse wisdom of God is reflected in God's multidiverse community of people called the church. Being a unified diversity is not only baked into the church, it is necessary for the gospel. This is truly good news. In light of everything I've talked about, what does unity look like for you? Is it a unity that unifies against a threat, progressive theology or Christian nationalism? Or is it a unity that unifies in Jesus? Is it a unity that unifies and is motivated by fear? Fear of losing resources, fear of the other. Or is it a unity motivated by the love of God, love of one another, and love of even our enemies? Being a diverse church with different tribes, nations, and tongues, with different generations, women and men, different socioeconomic situations working together. This unified diversity is a beautiful mystery for those on the outside looking into the church. It's an open secret for those of us brothers and sisters here listening, but ultimately it shows the manifold wisdom of God to all people and the powers and principalities at work 
the church signifies to the powers and principalities, these evil forces that are looking down at our churches. It shows to them and it displays to them that the time for them sowing division, causing unhealthy conflicts between people groups that lead to sexism, racism, and classism, their time is up. The unified diversity of the church demonstrates God's victory and triumph. It also is the ultimate demise of the powers and demonic forces at work in our world. This is what God sees in our church. He sees in y'all when we work together, bringing our cultures and our differences in cultures, yet unifying in, 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 in spite of that, he sees victory. He sees in all of y'all triumph. You are God's victory. You are God's triumph. This is what a unified diversity tells everybody. Not just a mystery, but a victory. My natural leaning is to value diversity over unity. Being a French-born Haitian black immigrant with a German first name that means spring, I hold tight to seeing how each and every person is different, that we are the image of God in unique and special ways. And sometimes I see unity as an obstacle rather than a gift to the church. When I say unity, I'm not calling for uniformity. I'm calling for something more special than uniformity. Unity is coming together despite our differences, um, or actually in light of our differences. But I, I struggle to value unity. Um, because it seems like an obstacle. For others of us, it's the flip-flop. You value unity, and it tends to look more like uniformity, because that's easier. Um, And you set aside diversity for another moment. We are all called to a unified diversity. In those moments when we value one over the other, Jesus tells us to get behind him and follow. Get behind him and follow Because God desires a unified, diverse church that holds unity and diversity together. And ultimately, it leads us to a practice. At the end of every sermon, we have something to grab onto, to practice, to consider, to integrate into our lives, and to embody each and every day as we embody the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to have unity and diversity together, it requires practice. And the practice for kind of maintaining the the diversity of the church is empathy. Empathy protects diversity in the church. It's saying, I do not understand completely how it is to live in your shoes. If you're from a different culture, ethnicity, nationality, accent, age, gender, we need to put ourselves in other people's shoes. So it's best to lead with listening. Lead with listening. Hear the story empathize and understand before we go jumping to discipling or helping other people parent helping other people in their marriage let us listen and empathize if their cultural or social location is different from ours it's okay to just listen initially because that maintains the people's diverse cultures because when we just go shooting for the hip and just broad brush discipling we can sometimes miss each other because the cultures are different so let's just listen and then the second practice is accountability accountability maintains the unity in a unified diversity 
because it reminds us that we're all unified under Jesus. We have the same standard of Jesus and we need to walk in the same direction together. So we need to be accountable to the same standards. It'll just be expressed in different ways, in different cultures, in different bodies, but the standards remain the same. The mystery is an open secret that we, the church, are a unified diversity that was created by the blood of Jesus who tore down the walls of hostility, bringing the, making the two one and ultimately representing victory everywhere we go.